Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Literally, you have been to, with Rabbi Tetz, I believe, on a trip in Prague over Shabbos. Can you tell our listeners and myself, how, how was it? So it was a very unusual trip in that the participants were from four corners of the earth almost, ranging from Los Angeles to Sydney. And most of them had never met each other before. Borchem went very well. It was a great group. I mean, to give you an idea of the international flavor, the second most spoken language was Farsi, and the third was Russian. And very timely. Uh, yes. <laughs> and we hope to do a further trip in late October back to Prague and then another one with this group potentially to Italy. So you're saying just in general for our listeners who want to create trips to do with you they don't have to be one community necessarily it can just be loads of different people but if there's one common goal and they're there for one purpose it could still gel well. Yeah, absolutely. Although it is unusual. I, I, I rarely do uh, put together trips unless somebody else has put it together. So generally people come to me and say, right, we've got a community. So it's unusual in that respect, as far as I'm concerned. Either way. So I've actually been asked to speak a little bit about the Ukraine and its history regarding the Jews. Now, really, we would need a full podcast in its own right, but I do want to make a few remarks to bring Ukraine's history into focus. There have been a number of sweeping statements made, one of which was in a public forum last week, when it was said that Ukraine was historically the greatest enemy of the Jews in Europe, and therefore, as a consequence, we shouldn't harbour feelings of compassion for their suffering, which is simply an astonishing statement on many levels and made unaware of European Jewish history. I've heard a lot of upset in the community of people standing up for Ukraine, of Jews associating themselves with Ukraine. So, So first off, whilst there is no question that Ukraine's Nazis participated with enthusiasm in the murder of almost one and a half million Jews in their own country during the Holocaust. And Ukrainian guards were in a number of the camps. Nevertheless, ultimately, we cannot lose sight of the fact that the Holocaust was created by Germany planned by Germany, financed, overseen, implemented, administrated, that doesn't absolve the Ukrainians. It contextualizes them, meaning they are opportunists rather than initiators. They they don't have that mentality. And without Nazi Germany and its methodology, its planning, mass murders wouldn't have taken place. In a way, in a broader way of seeing it, 
the reason Ukraine has spent almost no time as an independent country ruling itself for hundreds of years is because they don't have the leadership that creates that. They collaborated on an horrific level, but only after the opportunity was gifted to them. So surely some would argue then that the rabid anti-Semitism is parallel to Germany rather than just not as meticulous or as methodical. So, in other words, if one and a half million Jews had been living in Romania or Lithuania, the same story would have manifested. And therefore, it's almost talking about, I don't know, Christian hostility. There are no geographical boundaries to that definition. And it's a simplistic assessment to base the title of worst enemy in Europe on numbers because Ukraine had more Jews to start with, beyond which, of course, uh, Nazi Germany exterminated a further five and a half million Jews. Yes, I know that brings the total to seven million, but for a future podcast. And that's far in excess of the one and a half million. So, you know, how do we see Germany in this? How does this compare to the other countries in Europe? Are you saying that they are comparable? Well, let's take an earlier example. Let's talk about Spain. Spain killed almost no Jews for 500 years. True. But that's because they were so successful in removing all the Jews that there was no one left basically to kill. Right? So it was Judenrein. And in the process, in the late 1490s, in terms of numbers, the Iberian expulsions converted, forcibly and otherwise, over 100,000 Jews, perhaps 200,000, which is more than were ever killed in Ukraine until World War II. And Chazal tell us, Godel min greater is the person who causes somebody to sin and turn away from Judaism more than actually putting them to physical death. So, you know, it is not just comparable, but it is greater in that sense. And another 100,000 died either directly or indirectly as a consequence. So those numbers are, in the Middle Ages, are a real statement. In Germany is the same story. They ejected all the Jews from Munich and all of Bavaria, as well as you know Berlin and, and, and all of what became Prussia, for at least 300 years. So they didn't kill anybody. Not because they were friendlier to the Jews, but because there were no Jews to kill. And beyond which, it is simply difficult to speak much of Ukraine as a country from the mid-13th century onwards. It was almost always part of somebody else's empire, even very shortly after Khmelnytsky. So talking about Ukraine's 1,000 years of history of the Jews is almost fictional. There, there was essentially no such place. And you can see this clearly in 1932-33, because Ukraine was the breadbasket of the Soviet Union, of the USSR, of Eastern Europe. In the famine of 1932, at least two million Ukrainians died because the Soviets, the Russians, took all the Ukrainian wheat for themselves and the, the Ukrainians had no say in the matter. So that's on the level of, you know, sort of um, comparison. But beyond all of that, the idea that descendants are tarred with the sins of their countrymen 
from generations earlier. You don't have a mainstream psak in halacha, a halachic ruling, regarding Germany, say, that the current inhabitants of Germany should not be given mercy because of what Germany did 80 years ago. That is a description given to Amalek, which has not been ascribed to Ukraine. Um, and I think many of the UK listeners will be aware of the tremendous efforts of a very close friend of mine, Jeremy Posen, over the last three weeks to extricate uh, hundreds of Jews from the Ukraine, uh, orphans, young families, uh, Ripsol members. And when asked on TV and radio why they didn't help non-Jewish refugees, he explained that actually they did if they came to them for help. Uh, beyond the fact that in halacha there is a concept of eva, which is really anti-Semitism, uh, which requires us to help non-Jews as otherwise it can cause a real backlash, both locally with the residents of Ukraine and internationally, if they wouldn't have done this. It is also, I think, pretty clear that assistance was given to non-Jewish Ukrainians, even where it would not have been noticed, and it was given by people in the zone, fully aware of the need to rescue Jews in the country. I guess just to add to what you're saying, maybe this was uh, part of what you said, but when you almost focus on a country and the evil, then you forget that they were just messengers from God and whatever... Well, no, listen, if we're talking about perpetrators, uh, Pare might have been a messenger from God, but the, the, the country was obliterated in the Exodus in Yitzhak Mitzrayim. I, I am not saying that people who choose to do evil, you should just forgive and forget and move on. I don't believe in that at all. Not that I am the one who makes halachic uh, rulings on these areas. What I'm saying is that you can't extrapolate from events that took place generations earlier to a current point in time, and definitely not without looking at the entirety of a continent in context. Mm. So when you go to Germany today, sorry to just uh, be on this point, because I'm sure there'll be people who are quite emotionally charged about this, uh, what you're saying. When I went to Germany recently, there's almost that feeling you get in the air where you look around and you wonder, would these people still do the same? As you hear our grandparents say, they were our neighbors, they were our friends, they were all smiley, and then they just turned against us. Is it almost wrong to like walk around the streets with almost that cold fear of, or, or should they be, they, these, they were their grandfathers, they, these are people are reformed. The short answer to that is, I don't know, meaning that when you are looking at people, I mean, they'd have to be in their 90s now to have been actively participants in what happened during the Holocaust. I, I don't know the answer to that. But what I would say is that I remember hearing personally from uh, Ramesh Shapira Zatzal, I used to suggest places we would go, we would create a trip on an, an annual basis. And I would come up with various places to suggest he was okay with going to Worms in Germany. He was not okay, interestingly, with going to Austria. Hitler's birthplace. And not only because of that, but because uh, definitely at the time, but even to a large degree today, they have not apologized for their role in the Holocaust. They keep to the narrative that they were taken over. So you can see that even the place where 
the Holocaust was planned and, and administered still did not hold for Ramosha the same level of hostility as the perpetrators themselves. And also to share a, a sort of a piece of anecdotal narrative, as I mentioned, uh, I was in Prague last week, and one of the participants, Vlad, spent the first 30 years of his life in Kiev, or Kiev, as they pronounce it, and he made two very interesting remarks to me. The first was that, you know, the, the TV tower in Kiev that everyone saw being blown up? Yeah. And it was followed by, you know, by the ridiculous assertions that Bobby Yar was being targeted by the Russians. So whatever. <laughs> but what Vlad told me was that forget the proximity to Bobby Yar. That TV tower was built on top of a Jewish cemetery. He remembers the Matsevas that were there, the tombstones. And this was a classic activity throughout Eastern Europe, but not of the Ukrainians, but the Soviets. They, they were the ones who, who called the shots. The famous Vilna Cemetery in, in Preshburg in Slovakia. The Hassan Seifer's Shul wasn't blown up by the Nazis, but by the Soviets. Nikolsburg had seven shuls post-World War II. It now has basically one. And the fact that this TV tower is blown up on the instruction of the country that sort of built it is noteworthy. Don't know what it means, but it's noteworthy nonetheless. And secondly, he told me that when he grew up, he must be in his early 60s probably, there was anti-Semitism in the Ukraine. And now when he goes back, he has an older sister living in Kiev, still in a bomb shelter there. I was in touch with him today. He said to me, you know, she's got enough food for the next uh, couple of months. But when he goes back now, there is a very perceptible absence of anti-Semitism, which means that history is nuanced and it needs to be dealt with as such, not with bombastic one-liners. And I have to repeat, I am not defending their record throughout time, but it needs to be in context. Okay, thank you for that. I'm sure that will be of great interest to the listeners. So at least that's an introduction of sorts to Jewish Ukraine. I'm sure you could fill a few podcasts with yes. the actual history. Today's main topic, I believe we're up to the third episode on the 16th century Poland. Yes. So if we haven't gone too off the beaten track, <laughs> could okay. we, uh, so could we will realign? Least, well, we'll stick with identity. And I'd like to introduce a revolutionary understanding of the Ashkenazim. The, the Jewish world recognizes two broad categories of identity, your, your Svardi or your Ashkenazi, and that many subdivisions within that. But typically, you know, people would say to you, I don't know, there are 10 million Ashkenazim in the world and 4 million Svardim, something along those lines. So I have news for you. Most of those Ashkenazim were made into Ashkenazim, and there are two people responsible for it. They are the two people who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law. Maybe let's personalize it. Um, are you Ashkenazi? So I think. I'm not right. sure by the end of it. But <laughs> where, where was your father born? Father was born in Israel. And your grandfather? Also Israel, Tel Aviv, I believe. Okay. And your great-grandfather? Um, that's <laughs> digging a bit deep. I, I'm not sure how it's pronounced. I think it's Riga. In Lat I know it's in Latvia. It's the capital of Riga. Right. Yes. Bri yeah. Okay. So none of them lived in Western Europe, let alone Germany. What makes them Ashkenazi? Ashkenaz means Germany. 
so, you know, are Ashkenazim potentially Jews who lived in Germany, in Ashkenaz, perhaps even if they weren't born there? Or maybe you can say all descendants of a common group of ancestors from Germany. Or maybe you're going to tell me, I don't know, all Yiddish-speaking Jews. How's your Yiddish? <laughs> uh, because what makes somebody from Latvia unless he can trace his ancestry back to Germany, which is not necessarily the case by any means, what makes him Ashkenazi? So, so I always thought it had to do with being from Lithuania or, or Je Lithuania and Germany. Why? Why? Lithuania is not Ashkenaz. In fact, even within Ashkenaz, listen, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the, <laughs> the, the particulars, but let's just leave it as, as a question. To you question my whole your, Judaism Your entire there, yeah. identity is yeah. now on thin ice. <laughs> So, the Shulchan Aruch is created in the 1500s, and we know that Ashkenazim tend to follow the Ramah, who we mentioned last time at length, um, but who decided that we should all be bound by those laws? Because the Shulchan Aruch isn't just an attempt to put all halacha in one book. It is bringing all of Europe under two rulings. And it's interesting because when we go back to thinking about Provence, the Rambam failed in this regard, and they succeeded. And the question is, with what authority? How does Poland become the location of Ashkenazi halacha? Uh, we saw that many people came to Poland from the Czech lands or from Austria. Is Austria now suddenly also Ashkenaz, a sort of, I don't know, a role reversed on Lebensraum? And, and what about the French? The, the descendants of the Bale Teisvis. So, you know, you say to me, well, how much difference could there possibly be between the French and the German? They're all in, in common yeshivas. Well, no, in halacha, there are things that they are very different about. Washing hands before making kiddush. That's something that German Jews do and French Jews. And I'm talking the times of Balitosis. Rashi writes, you know, that there was a chosen and he uh, washed his hands before Kiddush. But, you know, OK, fine. Rashi said it's not a problem to do. Quite clearly, Rashi did not follow this. They had differences in halacha. And even regarding, you know, the certain aspects of Tefillah, where Rabbi Huda Chosid says that the French are very mistaken in what they're doing. I mean, the, the Ashkenazim nowadays, we, we, we're similar, but we have many different groups of styles, the different styles of learning, different styles of dress, Nusch of Tefillah. I mean, there's an umbrella resemblance, but we're different. So, the Shulchan Aruch unified halachic practice. In other words, talk about, you know, would you use an esrog if you walked into any uh, Ashkenazi shul in the world? The answer is yes, because it has a, a similar theme. And what happens in the Shulchan Aruch is nothing less than revolutionary, and we take it for granted. To put it into context, if I am not following the halachic authority of my own country, let's say I'm from Austria in the late 1400s or 1500s, and I'm not following those opinions, then why shouldn't I follow the Rambam? I mean, Maimonides was a great scholar, so why shouldn't I follow him? Why would I follow the country next to Austria? Yeah, well, surely Maimonides was ruling for the Jews in specifically Muslim countries where he was from. 
Well, even the Ramar didn't always think so, because there are occasions when the Ramar abandons Rashi's opinion and follows the Rambam. So it's a lot more complex than we assume. And interestingly, the 16th century generally was an age of legal codification throughout Europe. Uh, France, Spain, England, Poland, the Ottoman Empire. And legal codification can have one of two opposite effects. It can erase local differences or by giving local differences official sanction, it preserves different identities. So, for instance, in, in England, the boundary between England and Wales was weakened in the 16th century by the extension of English common law into that region, which is reflected in, in virtually any document that somebody would sign in, in this country today. And therefore, perhaps the place to start understanding this is not within these lands, but further away, where Ashkenazim created a community in a land that was clearly not Ashkenazi. Those in Mediterranean countries, for example, beginning in the 14th century, after the Black Death, communities of Central European Jews began to be established around the Mediterranean. And by the mid-16th century, which is the period that we're talking about, there were communities in, in Padua, in Venice, in, in, in Rome, Salonika, Constantinople, and in Eretz Israel, in Jerusalem, in Tzvas. In fact, in Tzvas, there were 12 separate communities of Jews. You, you had Portugal and Castile and Aragon and Cordoba and uh, Italy, the Arab lands, Hungary. In Salonika, there were nearly two dozen separate communities. Should each of these small groups, transplanted, continue to observe their own customs when they are small in number, where they are minority? You know, Venice classically, you go and visit Venice and they'll take you to all sorts of different shuls, an Italian one and a German one and a Turkish one. But they had five communities with a total of 2,000 Jews. And... What should you do? So to answer this question, Rabbi Yosef Karo, one of the main authors of the Shulchan Aruch, said, yes, yeah, there can be certain variations in custom, specifically for stringencies, for humerus, but not leniencies. And in, in other words, what he's saying is that there's a baseline of required behavior based on local halacha to which new communities can add, but not subtract or change it's Minhag Hamako. This is what this place does. So you move to Eretz Israel, you become Israeli, meaning f 500 years ago, you follow Rebus of Cairo and not Ramosha Isilis anymore. Identity is tied exclusively to your place of residence, and therefore in Rebus of Cairo's eyes, an Ashkenazi Jew was one who lived in an Ashkenazi country. This is not the case for the Ramah. For him, Ashkenazi Jews are much more broadly defined. So you can start breathing slightly easier at the moment. <laughs> he includes genealogy, you know, who you're a descendant from. He includes geography. Interestingly, Ashkenaz, as a name place, appears only 10 times for the Ramah in all of Shulchan Aruch, um, eight or nine of which are in Erechaim. Because for him, there is, yeah, Minukamoko, what the place is, there's Minagavu Senu, 
what our ancestors did. There is minig of the place in which a person is born. They all play a role. And therefore, why are Ashkenazim generally following Rashi rather than the Rambam? Not because the Bali Tesfus were greater sages than Maimonides, but simply because their rulings carry authority for their descendants. And the word descendant is not specifically or absolutely, shall we say, defined. Uh, he uses the term, the Ramah that is, Medinais Elu, these lands. Now, when he uses them in his response, it's very interesting. He does not include all the countries in the area. In one place, he contrasts these lands to Italy. The oil brought from Italy to these lands can't be used. But in another place, he contrasts these lands to Moravia. Um, he says, you know, the attitude of the Jews in the two places are different with regards to drinking wine made by non-Jews. And in a third responsum, he contrasts these lands to Germany. He says, you know, in these lands, the hatred of non-Jews is not as strong as it is in the lands of Germany. And, you know, when somebody had a surname Ashkenazi, it didn't mean they came from Ashkenaz, but that they were different to the Svardi community. The Ari, for instance, he was born in Egypt and called Ashkenazi. So responsa admittedly are more localized. The questions being asked are not generic, they're specific and they're tied to places and times. So he's contrasting two proximate countries. But in the Shochan Aruch, when he says Medinos Elu, he means all non-Svardi countries. And unsurprisingly, there were very strong detractors. There was protest. The, the, the brother of the Maharal, Rebheim ben Metzalel, uh, who lived in Germany, says that the Ramah rejects Rebus of Karo's authority over Ashkenazic Jews. By the same principle, Rebheim rejects the Ramah's authority over German Jews. And, and he actually writes, there is a need to assert the difference between the customs of the Jews of Germany and those of Poland, and the Ramah didn't mention the customs of Germany. He is following Polish custom and calling it Ashkenazi. Uh, by the way, there are plenty of things that we do today that they did not do in, in the Rhinelands, in, in, you know, in Worms, etc., and, of course, the Marshal, who we mentioned at length last time, who's all about independence in learning, unsurprisingly, was also quite strongly against the creation of the Shulchan Aruch. He felt that origins are not the basis of halacha. He said that the, the true heirs of the Balitosis were not their children, but the Spanish Talmud commentators, like the Ramban, Nachmanides, who was a pupil of the Balitosis, and so there was a, a, a degree of ambivalence when the Shulchan Aruch appears on the scene. In Prague, the rabbinate is quite uncertain whether to accept it to the extent that there were attempts in Prague to promote Mordechai Yaffa's Levush, which is also a halachic compendium, and he was from Prague. And in fact, in the early 17th century, the Shulchan Aruch was never printed in Prague. The Levush was printed twice. Shulchan Aruch was only printed there in the late 1680s. And in certain ways, you could almost say that it was the printer that made us all Ashkenazi. 
so it's a little flippant obviously but it's not untrue meaning the first time you find a broad definition of what is Ashkenaz is on the front page of the Ramaz publication of the Shulchan Aruch in Krakow in 1569-1570 and it says there the Shulchan Aruch authored by Rebius of Cairo with uh, comments by the Ramah to the customs of the Jews of Poland, Russia, Lithuania, Bohemia, Moravia and Germany. And it appeared during his lifetime, so he knew exactly what it said, and it was on page one. By the way, there's no mention of the Ukraine, because the Ukraine wasn't an independent country, going back to what we were saying earlier. And in fact, Robert Salah, the brother of the Maral, attacks the printer for wanting greater sales. He, he says, you know, quote, uh, he says, the printer added Germany on the title page, so he would increase his sales of books in all these lands because buyers always look at the beginning of the book. <laughs> so that's what made us Ashkenazi. Wow, that is fascinating. Can, can you, that was a lot of information to, to take in. So just to briefly summarize as best as you can, why am I Ashkenazi? Why did it work? What, what, what happened? So basically the Ramah set out to unify and codify halacha for an entire group of Jews who are linked in different ways. They could be linked by the country they are born in or live in. They could be linked because they accept these rulings. They could be linked because they are heirs to the Torah that was taught in these countries. But it is very different to Abiyas of Cairo. And it was helped by various factors. One was that Germany was not a single country. And therefore, even within Germany, you had the minhagim of this part, of that part. They didn't have minhag Ashkenaz in most areas. Few exceptions, but generally that was the case. The widespread use of the Shulchan Aruch, which was almost instantaneous, because of the recent invention of printing, and because Yiddish-speaking people, who are common to all of these areas, they created a common market for books, initially for those books that were printed in Yiddish, but then they become a self-identifying audience. They are a distinct group, a distinct market for Jewish books, and speakers of this language, of Yiddish, begin to regard themselves as a group and that that creates a singular entity even if they're in different countries so that's one reason there's another reason and that's practically and geographically from the turn of the 17th century the major rabbis in europe were basically students of the ramah and this helped enhance the authority and the reach of the shulchan Aruch within poland and outside of it and therefore the success of the Ramaz Halacha is tied to the success of Polish yeshivas, which means a hundred years earlier or a hundred years later, he would not have been able to do it, which is very interesting when we think of ourselves naturally in that way. Ain't necessarily so, if not for this. There are four of his students in particular, uh, Rabbi Rom Horowitz, the father of the Shlor, Rabbi Yomin Slonik, Rabbi and uh, Rabbi Shur Falk Cohen, who's the Sma, they view the Minhogim collected by the Ramah to be not only those that are practiced 
in the sort of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but in all the lands of the German Empire. And therefore, they are giving legal substance to the notion of Ashkenazi Jews way beyond anything territorial or genealogical. But it was written in his lifetime, as you mentioned earlier on page number one. Yeah, no, he, had already he, he subscribed to that. He felt that. He, he's not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. He felt that they are a group because of that, because they're heirs to a commonality, and that makes them unified. But I'll give you the third reason, and that ties into to your question, perhaps, because the author of the uh, Shlo, of the Shnei Luchas Abris, Rabbi Shai Horowitz in Prague, says that the Jews chose the Ramah. They made him into the leader of, so to speak, the super Kehila after his lifetime. They didn't have to choose him. He had no authority over them. They decided to go with it. I mean, the Shlom writes very interestingly. He says the Marshal was a greater scholar than the Ramah as a Talmudic interpreter. But the Ramah merited this from heaven. Similar to the debates in the Mishnah between Shammai and Hillel. We follow Hillel because in heaven they decided to make that happen. And this is the, the, the outcome. The, the, I mean, the Rambam writes similarly about the authority of the, of the Gomorrah altogether. It was accepted by the people as being that way. And, uh, you know, as a particular case in point, Buddha, Budapest, in the uh, 16th and 17th centuries, so Hungary was part of the Ottoman Empire, and its Jewish community was balanced between both the Ashkenazi and Sephardi worlds. And in the Ottoman Empire, Hungarian Jews were distinguished differently from the Ashkenazim. Sometime in the middle of the 17th century, the community of Buddha enacted a communal decree that their rabbis should make no decision in halacha except in accordance with the Shulchan Aruch, both Rabbi of Cairo and the Ramal, which means they voted themselves into the Ashkenazic world by accepting his authority. And therefore, uh, taking a step back, before 1492, Svard, which means Spain, and Ashkenaz, which means Germany, were simply two of the countries in which Jews lived in, and they had their own traditions. After 1492, Sephardi identity no longer is confined by geography. No one lives in Spain. It becomes based on communal association and language. And this becomes true as a result for Ashkenazim as well. But the definition of Ashkenaz was even further extended. And it's noteworthy that the Ramah was rabbi in a city which had yet to make its real mark on Jewish scholarship or Jewish history. Um, and therefore, you know, ideas of saying the traditions of my country, that alone wouldn't have made it happen because Polish traditions at the time went back about 50 years. That was it in, in comparison to Germany or Austria. And as I said, none of this is done out of sight. It's all there on page one of his Sefer. The Shulchan Aruch isn't the final word in Halacha. We don't always follow it. No, but it is the first place to look. 
there are considerations, yes, short shachtas, and etc. But it is the fundamental point of reference for all halacha, and it streamlined halacha. Certain things like everybody hears a hundred blasts of the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. That's new. Now, admittedly, there are certain Ashkenaz traditions which, since most Jews left Eastern Europe or were wiped out, there are certain things that we don't keep at all. You know, classically, the fast of the 20th of Sivan, which marks both the Crusades, but more centrally, the massacres of 1648, where there were special prayers, slichas, etc. We don't do that anymore. So there's certain things that we have moved away from what was classically Ashkenazi minhag. And yes, so the commentaries have had a role and an influence, but it is the fundamental point of departure. It's fascinating. So I'm just going to ask you one last time to very briefly summarize an Ashkenazi and a Sfadi today. What makes them Ashkenazi? I know I asked you before, but there's been a lot of information since. What makes an Ashkenazi today? What makes a Sfadi today? I would say actually today what makes them Ashkenazi and Sfadi is ancestry. Because nowadays you don't have entire countries being one or the other. In every country you have communities of both. And so it's very much centered around their ancestry. And in the process, therefore, the acceptance on the one hand of Svardi scholars and halachic authorities, and on the other hand, Ashkenazi ones. Um, but it, it's almost set in place already. Right. Okay, I guess that wraps up episode three. That was definitely, definitely fascinating. I'm happy I can leave safe knowing that I'm still an Ashkenazi. You, you. are, yes, but uh, not according to the brother of the Maral. <laughs> Maybe there are changes that would have happened in, in his world as well. I'd like to wish all our listeners a Simchas Purim. And there's one email that I wanted to respond to. Somebody who listened to the podcast, the first of the ones on Purim Cotton and the Soviet Union, Purim in 1953, mentioned that Rebliezer uh, Nanus, the hero of the story, had a very close connection with the Friedeke Lubavitcher Rebbe, who gave him a bracha that he would survive the communists. Wow. So um, that's uh, very much important to mention. Okay, thank you very much. That's happy Purim to you too. You. And looking forward to, are we doing next week, are we continuing on 16th century Poland, or are we starting a new series, or to be discussed? It's still to be decided, Whatever yes. Purim throws at you. <laughs> Potentially. Thank you, and I can remind all listeners that any um, feedback or questions will always be looked at, Rabbi Hirsch, and possibly even responded to if he has the time. And those could be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you, Rabbi Hirsch.